Well, let us uh, just come to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, you've taught us to look to you. You've taught us to look to your word. You've taught us to expect us you to speak to us. We pray, our Father, that our attention shall be rooted on you, fixed on you, delighting in you, and that you will speak to us deep in our hearts, Father, that we may be secured for this life and for the next. And we ask this for your glory and for our fruitfulness while we remain here. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who can we trust? That's a good question. And uh, uh, what we're going to do today is continue the theme of promise, but to see the promise that was made to Abraham. And of course, because it's made to Abraham, and Abraham is the father of all who believe, according to Romans 4, uh, then... Uh, we are children. I love, I love seeing the Bible as our own family history. You've got some old um, photo albums at home and maybe even uh, somebody who's put some history down in writing. Um, well, it's one thing to read history generally, but it's another thing to see or, or know your own family history. So we can pick up the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation and say this is our family history. Uh, and you know somehow or another that you belong. That's why the Bible is, uh, you know, we need to just think of it. We pick up a Bible and we're actually uh, reading stuff that's, what is that, uh, three and a half thousand years old. There's not many other documents you pick up that are three and a half thousand years old, are you? Anybody read the Code of Hammurabi? No? Oh, strange about that. Because that's when Abraham lived around the same, well, no, about Moses lived around the same time. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, here we're reading a very, very ancient document and yet we actually, with all the accommodations you have to make for the different times, you just know it's your family history. So I hope we sense that today as we read this. Um, uh, we're going to come across the word inheritance today. Um, uh, at the risk of being over-personal, I'll just tell you a story that happened uh, while we're on Skype with our, one of our member of our family. And uh, we're talking about inheritance. And, um, and my son looked at, uh, and, and, well, he looked at me because he's on Skype. And, and he said, um, well, he said, this is our inheritance. And that's, that's something, isn't it? I mean, he's seen the will. He knows jolly well he's going to get some stuff. But, you know, but that's not what's important to him. Isn't that interesting? And uh, inheritance means we're being treated as family. If God says he's got an inheritance for us, can you see where we are? We're being treated as family. And, um, and when in, the other thing about a promise is that when anyone makes a promise, you actually are entering into that life. I promise one of my grandchildren, for example, I'll teach him to drive. Then you spend hours in the car together. Do you know what I mean? If you make a promise, you're entering into that person's life. And that other person has to enter into your life because they're looking to you for something or other they can't get any other way. And can you see that a promise isn't just sort of for something you know in your head. A promise is essentially an entering into another person's life and that other person entering into your life. And I hope we can see today as we look at the story of Abraham that, uh, that uh, inheritance has that kind of character to it because one of the things we are promised is an inheritance. But first of all, Abraham himself when God speaks to Abraham, a whole new chapter in human history opens up. 
And I say that because if you read Genesis 1 to 11 and then you read chapter 12, you actually see that emerging out of what is preceded comes Abraham and it's in marked contrast to what just has happened before. What's happened in chapter 11? You know your Genesis, you'll know it's the Tower of Babel. What were they trying to do at the Tower of Babel? They were trying to build a tower high so that people would not be scattered abroad across the face of the earth. Do those words sound familiar? Spread abroad across the face and populate the earth. That's the command to Adam and Eve. And so Tower of Babel is a direct contradiction and defiance against doing it and they didn't want, want to take all the risks of going out and, and inhabiting the earth and doing all the things God wanted to do. They wanted to be cosy and together and, and not be separated and so they brought this great tower to gather, gather themselves together. And, um, and God says, that's enough. Confuses their languages. They've got no ready means of communication or of cooperation and they scatter abroad across the face of the earth. God never loses the initiative. Uh, but it does show that uh, ambition is thwarted and let's say it very clearly, human ambition will always be thwarted. God's always maintaining the initiative. And uh, so his world that he's making and the inheritance he's going to give to us is one that's made not by our ambition but by his promise. It's a way in which we enter into his future the future he has for us and it's the way in which he enters into the life that he wants us to have uh, with all its richness. Uh, the, un the problem is that we'd rather be the ones who are trustworthy. That's always been our problem. Um, just let anybody criticise you and see how quickly we rise up to justify ourselves. It's, a, it's kind of, it comes with a territory, isn't it? It's annoying. It's annoying when other people do it but eventually you get annoyed with yourself. Uh, feeling like you're, why do we have to justify ourselves? Uh, because we feel guilty. Uh, we'd rather be the ones who are trustworthy and reliable, but that's our problem. God must painstakingly, it's a hard job for God to teach us to trust Him. A really hard job. There's an example there I put down which you can read sometime in Isaiah 48. When God says, I'm doing this, and he's talking about bringing Cyrus around to rescue um, uh, Israel from their captivity, he says, I'm going to do this in such a way uh, that you could never have guessed and you could have never brought about, lest you say, my idols did it. I mean, we can even say, you know, something lovely happens in your church and say, oh, it's because we prayed. No, it's because God loved us. <laughs> do you follow how we want to take credit, even by praying. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Is God's blessings attached? Well, of course there's an attachment between our prayers and God's blessing, but not if we claim credit for it. We claim not because we're good people, but because we're beggars. That's why we pray. Prayer's not a good work. It's crying out for help because you're stupid and helpless. Do you saw that? That's just how it works out, isn't it? So God has to do things in such a way that we can't take credit for it. So we maintain the relationship. The big problem with self-justification is not because just because it doesn't work and it's sinful, but because it keeps God out of the equation. And God's wanting to be good to sinners and he has a real problem with it. So he has to do things in a particular way and that's by promise. 
The human race doesn't need its heady ambition and self-promotion and grand plans. It needs a creator and father. And that's what Abram discovers. So here's God comes to Abram. I just love the story. Um, the Lord came to uh, Genesis 12. We'll just read the actual verses. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram. Now, that's very simple words. The Lord said to Abram. Um, now, it's interesting when, when um, Stephen uh, is giving his defence before the people who are finally going to stone him. You remember how he begins this story? The God of glory appeared to our forefather Abram. That's something, isn't it? The God of glory. What does Stephen mean when he talks about the God of glory? The God of glory in the face of Christ, as Paul says later on. Uh, the, God, the Lord full of glory and grace and truth. That's his glory. He's full of grace and truth. What does it mean for the Lord to say to Abram? The Lord's come to him. He's initiated a relationship in which Abram is go, is, has conveyed to him in a way that we don't understand, has conveyed to him something of the magnanimity. It's a good word, isn't it? Uh, the largesse, you know, the... The, the fullness of God's grace uh, came to him. And once that had happened, Abram was spoiled for anything less. Have you been spoiled for anything less? Have you been spoiled? Can you be satisfied the world anymore? Or not if you've met the God of grace. He spoils you for anything less. Is that true? And you want what he can do rather than what you can boast about. And so Abram is rooted to the spot really by this uh, coming of God to him. Uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless, bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and those whom you dishonor, who, who, him who dishonors you I will dishonor. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's an astonishing statement, isn't it? It's um, world-encompassing in its dimensions. It's personal, you, and uh, so forth. So God uh, comes to him, uh, and uh, Titus 3, 4 there is, uh, when the, is a verse that says, when the goodness and kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, uh, he justified us, not for works we does done, but by his own grace. Um, so it's quite something for the God of goodness of God, our Saviour, to come to a person and he hungers for what God can do, not for what he can make of himself. And his homeland is later on called an inheritance. Now we're skipping over, we're skipping over large bits here, so we're not going to take the story of, of, of um, Abram in its detail. That's a great thing to do, just to go through and see all the struggles that Abram had to, to believe this promise, um, because it took a long time to come into effect, decades in fact. Uh, this homeland, uh, but if you go on into Deuteronomy 4, you actually find the word, this is where the word inheritance starts to come in. God has an inheritance for his people. That is, he's treating his people as family and he wants to give them something. So if that's the way we're reading the Bible as a family history, uh, can you see that God has uh, got us in view and he's wanting to give us something? He's wanting to give us a future, as Jeremiah says, that he wants to give you a future and a hope. Um, and uh, so that's an inheritance. Um, this promise is not mere territory, 
but it's a land that the Lord looks after. And again, in Deuteronomy 11, there's this lovely verse. He says, the land that I'm taking you to, because in Deuteronomy they haven't got there yet. This is his, uh, the second giving of the Lord just before they go into the promised land. And, and Moses is saying to them, the land, or God is saying to the people through Moses, the land that I'm taking you into isn't like Egypt where you've come out of. A land that you watered with your feet. And he probably means irrigation. I've actually seen... Uh, flood irrigation uh, done by uh, Greek farmers up and outside of Port Pirie when I was up there and um, you know they, they just run the water around and then they move the channel across and it goes around to the next row of tomatoes and so forth and so they, they watered everything from the Nile there was not a lot of rainfall in Egypt uh, but they had plenty of water in the Nile so they watered it by flood irrigation and uh, so he said you, you had to work hard there he says no this is the land the Lord looks after it's going to rain in fact Palestine doesn't have a big rainfall, as it happens. I um, suppose it didn't back then, but the Lord would look after it. That was the point. You see the, the difference between the world and the promised land, uh, world being represented by Egypt? There's a land you have to look after. Here's a land, the, so your inheritance is something not that you are, in one sense you're responsible for, but it's a land that the Lord looks after. There's a relationship going on here. Um, and then as you go on, you actually find that the inheritance that we've actually got is a kingdom. Uh, you know, we're going to inherit the kingdom. You know, many people coming to Jesus, how will I inherit the kingdom? Uh, and, uh, and Jesus says, no one can, in, can even see the kingdom of God. He tells Nicodemus, no one can even see the kingdom, let alone enter into it. So Israel knew that uh, their, their inheritance was a land. It, it was, a, um, uh, it was uh, then... Uh, that the Lord looked after. It was also a kingdom. Um, that is because eventually it had a king and the king was God's vice regent to look after. We'll be more about that next week. Um, and it was a place from which not only would Israel be reigned over by a, a king, but Israel's king, if you read Psalm 2, which was a coronation psalm, the Lord stands amongst the nations uh, the Lord ruled in, in, in Israel, not just so he could look after his people, but from there be managing all the nations. That was his objective. Because you remember the promise from the beginning was you'll be a blessing to all the nations. You'll be a father of the nations. So it grew out. So the inheritance is, is land, but not just as property, but as a shared uh, responsibility. I'm going to look after it and I'm giving you jobs to do as well. But then it's also a kingdom. The inheritance is a kingdom. And then it, we're told also in this reading that Abram becomes the father of nations. And um, according to Romans 4, it actually says he inherits the world. But actually I realised afterwards that Romans 4.13 is picking up what God tells um, Abram in Genesis 17.5. Uh, he actually tells him that he will be uh, the leader of all the nations. I'll just read that actually, 17.5. Um, God tells Abram um, no longer shall your name be called Abram but your name shall be called Abraham for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations what does that mean it's interesting isn't it I have made you the father this is a promise uh, and it's a promise that's been given to our family can you, can you hear that it's been a promise. That, so we're not just taking in an odd promise here that might refer, refer, refer to what's going to happen on Friday or Tuesday or something or other like that. We're talking about the big compass. 
of God's made a promise to our family and we are members of that family. So the individual promises that you read in the Bible and take delight in are all part of a a panorama of God's largesse who wants to do us good and to take us into himself and to share with us in our life. Um, so, um, uh, so this compass that you and I have here for the Lord's blessing you, it's not just so you can have a great life. It's because he wants his largesse to spill out from you to touch the lives of other people. God doesn't just promise Abram that he will be blessed, but that he will be a blessing in all the world. So there's always an outgoing compass in what God's, because God's creator of the whole world. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't expect anything less, would you? That if he's going to come in and share your life and you're going to share his life, then you'd expect to be on the same page, wouldn't you? And to be, uh, expect to be a blessing in all the world. So that's what was promised to Abram. Now this promise includes all God's people. Uh, for example, what does it mean when God says in Psalm 37, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity? Probably means Canaan. <clears throat> That's, God says you will inherit this land. You will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. It's a promise, isn't it? He's sending them in, Psalm 37. I mean, if you're ever in a fix, one place to go is Philippians 4, 6, as the little ditty goes, but another place to go is Psalm 37. It's a, a wonderful psalm. I've treasured it since I was a teenager. Uh, it's a good, good go-to place. <clears throat> Fret not yourself because of evildoers, for those who bring wicked devices to pass, <clears throat> they shall all fade away. Uh, but trust in the Lord, and he will act. Have you ever? That's a, that's a promise, isn't it? Uh, trust in the Lord, and he will act. That would be a good thing to write on the back of your brain, wouldn't it? Trust in the Lord, and he will act. And I think that's, uh, we need to take that on board. So, uh, but he says the, the meek will inherit the land. Now Jesus picks that up and broadens it out. In his beginning, how does he begin his teaching ministry? Well, he begins his teaching ministry according to Mark by proclaiming the kingdom of God. Yes, but how does he teach us to live? When he begins to teach us to live, first item in his Sermon on the Mount is, blessed are the meek for the promise. He, they shall inherit the earth. That promise is in place because Jesus is Lord and you come under his reign, so that promise stands, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. Well, it started off as a land that the Lord would take him to. It started off as a being a father to all the nations. It went on to be a father to all the nations. It became a kingdom. And it's also in the New Testament inheriting eternal life, you know, because I think the Jews by then had realised that everything in this life comes to an end and it's all of God's, what God's promised hasn't happened and they realised there was a resurrection. And so they were looking for eternal life as a way of entering into the fullness of the... Do you see the, the growth in the idea of what an inheritance is, or what God's promised to us? Uh, I think it's a logical sequence, uh, I haven't seen it spelled out anywhere, but it seems to me that it's a fairly logical course. I'm just picking up the way, the inheritance that God's given us and used it, talking about the various things God says we'll inherit. Um, but now he says we're going to inherit the earth. And the simplest Christian is going to inherit the earth. Well, come on, what do you really mean? I mean, does that really mean anything? Uh, I'm not sure that I want to inherit that. You know, I mean, I, just a uh, hundred acreage roads, quite fine, thanks. I don't really need any more. 
What does he mean inherit the earth? But that's what the Lord's got in mind. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, so the world is God's and he's giving it to us as a place we can live in now, as a place where he'll provide for us and a place where we can have a place of significance. Now that's just a little summary statement that I've um, drawn up out of all of the promises that are there. The world is God's. If, he, if this, this is where Jesus starts and says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit. What do I really mean by that? Well, I think it means this. The world is his God's. True. He's giving it to us. So the world's not Satan's. I mean, he's the prince in it, but it doesn't belong to him. And he doesn't have the final say. And this is a little place that the Lord looks after. And uh, he's giving it to us. It's a place where we can live in now, where we can provide for us and where we can have a place of significance. That is, will be a blessing. I think it's a tr- great treasure. Don't you long to be of significance to someone else? You don't just want to please... Well, I, I can't imagine you really just wanting to please yourself. You want to be something for your children. True. You want to be something to your neighbour. Oh, what a wonderful thing. For the Lord says, I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. It'll be permanent. It's good, isn't it? That gives you a rich life, doesn't it? Of being significant in the world to other people. Because so, it's God's. So Jesus, for example, they're very down-to-earth fellows, aren't they? They're disciples. And they come to Jesus one time and Jesus uh, has been talking about what you have to do if you're going to follow him. It's no good, he says, hanging on to all the past. If you're going to come and follow me, leave everything and follow it. And then the disciples begin to think and they say, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Where are our boats? We haven't been in them for months. Um, uh, we've left everything, what are we going to get? What shall we have is the actual term. It's interesting, isn't it? What's coming? Uh, is that your question too? What, what am I, what's coming to me? And um, they want to know what they'll have. And at that point, they have some wrong ambitions. You remember just later on, and the references there in Matthew 20, <laughs> in fact, if their mother's involved as well and she comes to Jesus and said, I want my two, two lads. He said, I want them top places in the kingdom. So there's some ambition there, isn't it? And mo- a lot of what we want has got a bit of imba- ambition in it, hasn't it? But what is interesting to me is that the Lord bypasses all that tomfoolery and says, well, you've asked me a question. What will you have? And I says, I'll tell you. He says, there's no man. He says, you're not going to miss out. You've left your boats, okay, and you haven't got an income now, and so you've got to depend on gifts and all that stuff. You've got to traipse across the country and to be dependent on some, some women giving you enough for breakfast and all that stuff. Uh, he says, there's no person who has left houses and lands and whatever who shall not, in Mark's version it says, in this life. And the assumption is in Matthew it's the same because of the terminology. There's no man who's left anything who shall not in this life receive houses, lands, mothers, parents, a hundredfold. Now somebody quips, who wants a hundred mothers? Um, I mean, it's an exaggerated uh, term, way of saying, you're never going to be shortchanged in this life. Isn't that interesting? And in, with persecutions, and in the life to come, eternal life. There's the deal. Can you see? The inheritance is now and then. Uh, 
and in fact it's not actually, it says you will receive. There's a different verb used in Matthew. You'll receive this now and you'll inherit this then. So it's not strictly inheritance. But can you see the idea of God's promise covers now? Because the world is his, he's going to give us the world. Well, what do we mean by world? Well, we've got to come to that. Um, uh, they have some wrong ambitions. They, will res- re- they have resources and relationships in plenty. Is that the story of your life as a Christian? I think it would be, wouldn't it? It wouldn't just be me that stands up here and says this and that, God's done. Any one of you could probably stand up here and say, yes, this, this. that's how it works, isn't it? Well, do we need to encourage young people these days with all the expectations that they're being taught to have? Do we need them to, to teach them? You know, we're not just teaching here for each other, are we? We've got parents, we've got children, and we've got grandchildren, and we've got neighbours, and, uh, and the world is just hungry. Well, I don't know it's hungry, but uh, my, my own understanding is that all of the, the, the large yes, if you like, of the Christian religion has been um, taken over, if you like, by secular society, and they're trying to have it without God, and that doesn't work. But we've still got a lot of leftover stuff. It's a great country to belong to Australia, isn't it? A lot of stuff gets coming to us all the time. Um, pensions and medical care. and There's so much that people don't have a hungry for what God can do. And so this is why I think Havel says, Havak Havel says, when people are under a rock, they have time to think. Do you see, these things are very real, aren't they? Are people hungry for what God can do? No, they're hungry for what they can get and what the government, they demand that the government provides for them. They're trusting the government. That's the question. Who can we trust? And who am I trusting? It's a good question, isn't it? And uh, so we need to have our eye and our ear attuned to what God has promised and, and let the largeness of it come to us so that we don't get fretful and so we don't become demanding of people who can't actually supply all that we're needing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. And he says, you're going to inherit the earth. So yeah, you'll have persecutions here and you'll die, and you'll get sick and all sorts of things will happen, but you'll never be shortchanged. And you'll have eternal life. Uh, that's the spirit of the thing. But we misunderstand inheritance if we're only thinking about it as, as property and health and things of that nature. If we don't see it as a relationship, we inherit eternal life. What's eternal life? This is eternal life. That they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. John 17:3. When the goodness and kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not by works we'd done, but by his own grace. Is that the Father you know? Is that the voice you're listening to? Is that the tranquility you have? Who can you trust? The world is defined by itself. Uh, the world, when it defines itself as having no God, must be taken by storm. There's plenty of sayings and plenty of psychology that goes along with that. But the world God promises to his people is comprehensive, including what it really is, what it will be, and what it is now. And God shows Abram and us a better way. Our future is important. It matters to him, and you can trust him. I love it in 1 Peter, this, this now and then thing is quite important, really. 1 Peter 1.13, he says... Uh, um, uh, 
uh, gear, gear your minds for action. 113, it says, uh, gear your minds for action. And the next line is setting your hope fully on the grace that is going to come to you at the appearing of Jesus Christ. See those two things now and then? Gear up your minds for action. In other words, something's going to happen now. And set your hope fully on the grace that is going. If your hope is here, you've got a mind ready for action because you know what the Father's wanting to give you. And it's got some, you know, good points now. Not everything, but a lot of good points. It's enough to give you good hope and uh, confidence. Very interesting reading Bonhoeffer's biography. In jail, threatened with his life. He basically, and he argued this case, he's a great, you know, great intellect of course, he argued this case, he says, I think it's right for us to be optimistic about what's going to happen, I think I'm going to get out of jail. Oh, as it happened, he didn't, and he got hung just before the end of World War II. But he maintained a vibrant spirit, you know, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you and prepare your minds for action. Do you see the, the balance between, if God is good and he's going to give you all that, then if he didn't even spare his own son, will he not also freely give you? Do you see the argument? The now and the end, there's not two, 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 two different things. They're part of the one thing, aren't they? If you've got a hope, well, it gives you mind for action, doesn't it? Okay, um, let's go on. Second, so that's the first thing, an inheritance. God promises him an inheritance. We're still looking really at Genesis 1, 1 to 3. Second, God promises Abraham a family and a son to secure it. So first of all, he promises him uh, a homeland and a help along the way. I love that phrase, a homeland. I didn't make much of it at the time, but a homeland. That's good, isn't it? A homeland. You think of people who come from overseas and then Australia becomes their homeland. What do they mean? Well, I mean, it's a place I feel, I feel at home. You know, a wonderful feeling, isn't it, to have a homeland. And God wants us to live not only in relation to the age to come, but in the, even, the, even now. He wants us to feel like, yeah, we're at home. We'll be okay. He's given us a homeland and he's given us help along the way. That's the way that Abram found it to be. It's the way we'll find it to be. Second, God promises Abraham a family and a son to secure it. This doesn't happen until it becomes impossible. <laughs> Same as Isaiah, isn't it? Uh, I did this in such a way that you couldn't claim your, your, your um, God did it. <laughs> uh, so God deliberately waits until he's 100 and his wife's 90, isn't it? Uh, become, waits until it becomes impossible. God wants Abraham and us to know that our life depends on him and not on us. That's important to God. Weakness is a great thing if we understand it rightly because strength gets in the road, doesn't it? Blessed are the who? The meek. Blessed are those who mourn. You're sad today? God says, great, great. I don't think he says it cheaply, if you know what I mean, but he says, great. You're going to come to me, aren't you? And I've got goodies for you you've never heard of before. Do you see? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It's not not comfortable being hungry, particularly when it comes to righteousness. Oh, that I might get my life together. Hunger and thirst. Well, what about the community? Wouldn't you just hunger for a bit of righteousness up and down the streets and across the nations? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Lord is pleased to let us feel the, the lacks of this present life 
in order that we might know the fullness of what he has. So uh, it becomes, um, Abram becomes persuaded in the midst of all of this. Why? Because the God of glory has appeared to him. What keeps him alive in this hope? Well, simply, God. Just like that. Abram is persuaded that the future he wants is the one God gives, not the one he takes. And he waits, and Isaac's born. And from this child, a people or a nation is born. And we, in Romans 4, and this is the big point of Romans 4, are exhorted to believe the promise just as he did. Jesus tells us that Abram delighted to see that his child would be greater than just, and we're branching out a bit here, but Jesus tells us that Abram delighted not only that he had a child, but that his child would be greater than Isaac. He would rejoice to see. I think Jesus must have read his Old Testament correctly. I, I think he probably was a reasonably good exegete, don't you think? <laughs> I would think so, and knew its, its proper meaning. And uh, so Jesus says, he rejoiced to see my day and was glad. The son that's going to secure the inheritance is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. God has always had all nations in mind and this happens through Christ and his church. That is, we are the people who are the children of Abram. That's what Romans 4 is telling us. And all believers in Christ are Abram's heirs by trusting Christ for our salvation, just as he trusted God to fulfill what he promised. A community created by what God promises. You see, it makes him a family. We're all part of a family one way or another, aren't we? But here, the ultimate family is the family of God and it's permanent. It's a lovely thing. You know, um, separations come in this life, but not in eternity. It's all going to be there. The whole family is going to be together. And um, so here's the church. The community created by what God promises is vastly different. I remember standing up at New Creation and a conference was being held there by a prison's aid or one of those organisations. And a person just uh, said to me, he was a member of the organisation, he said, I always feel very much at peace here. And I said to him, I think one of the reasons why this place is a place of peace is because we know that God is Father. Would that be true? You have a community that has a Father. You have a church that knows that God is Father. It makes a whole difference as to how things are conducted, doesn't it? It certainly does. And eternity is going to be nothing less than the Father and everybody knowing that God is the Father. So the community created by what God promises is vastly different uh, to the community we make out of our own ambitions and aspirations. And uh, leave the next bit. So thirdly, we must uh, move along. God will bless Abram. This is the third part of these early verses in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3. Third, God will bless Abraham and make him a blessing in the world. And I've already touched on that, so I won't make much more of it. The blessing is what makes the world function properly. God doesn't just say have kids. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. When you have kids, you've received God's blessing. If God ceased to bless the human race, it would cease to be productive. Blessing is not an an extra bonus, an icing on the cake. Blessing is a functional necessity for the functioning of everything. And if God's blessing was not on creation, we couldn't feed our populations. 
Uh, it's just a functional thing God says. You need my beneficence, you need my kindness, you need my sustaining in order for things to function. So he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Um, and um, the blessing, and can you see when God's blessing is how, how a society becomes tormented with lack of supply and not satisfaction even with what we have. The blessing now is nothing less than the blessing of Jesus Christ. You know, what's it? Um, I bet, what's Genesis 3. God has blessed us in Christ with the full spiritual blessing. Uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. What? That's just about heaven, isn't it? Chosen by God. And God says, I like what I see. You can stay in my company. Chosen to be holy and blameless before him. In love he destined to be his children. So there we have uh, the inheritance, you see. Uh, chosen to be his children. And not only so, but he, he, mag- he magnified his grace towards us through the blood of Christ. And all that. This is all God's beneficence, kindness, greatness, affection, goodness and kindness of God our Saviour appearing. Uh, this blessing is not just for us, but for the good of others. We become fruitful. And just here, I think this ties things together. This is the way in which Jesus inherits the earth. He does not inherit the earth by just going wham. He inherits the earth by being a blessing in it. And that's the way you and I inherit the earth too. You want to you be, just a very simple thing, he that has friends must show himself friendly. Do you want to be surrounded by friends? We'll start being one. You see, be a blessing. And then you find that you have a community. Not by expecting other people to be this, this and that, the other, but by just being what God's given you to be. It's lovely, isn't it? Totally different community uh, arises because of God's blessing. We don't have to make ourselves significant, important, rich and powerful. God is promising not just to keep the world functioning, which is the promise to Noah, but to make us significant in his kingdom. Uh, Fear not, little flock. And let me say it to you, as Jesus says it to his apostles, he says it to us now. Fear not, little flock. The Lord has decided to give you the kingdom. What does that mean? Probably means go to heaven, I suppose. But the kingdom's not just then. It's now. Christ's reigning. How about that? And you're part of it. How am I part of it? Well, just simply by being a blessing. You've received something from the Lord, you've got something to give. And it's very, very significant. And now, unexpectedly, uh, well, I find it unexpectedly when you're just reading Genesis and you hear this story about land and family and blessing, and then all of a sudden uh, the Lord says, uh, what about our child? And the Lord says, all right, you'll have a child in chapter 15. And, and Abram looked up and said, all right, God, okay, I know it's a long time, but I'm going to trust you. And then just this verse, out of the blue, he says, and therefore God justified. Isn't that interesting? What was going on in Babel? People trying to be the ones who were right, who knew what was good and so forth. But here you have a man who believes God's promise. And what does God say about him? Because he believes in me, he's the one that's right. Not because he's done all the right things, 
not because of works. That's the big point that's being made in Romans 4. Not because he did all the right things, but because he trusted in God. And God says, I like that. That's my boy. That's my kid. Justifies him. And uh, so that's how, in this way, this is also a promise. If God says, you are justified, that's a promise because it means Abram can now live in, in God's approval, not for it. What, what are you living for? For people's approval? Or because you already have God's approval? It's a big difference, isn't there? One makes a frenetic, anxious relationships. The other exudes God's peace. It means Abram can live in God's approval and favour, not when he succeeds, but immediately and all the time. This changes life profoundly. It touches us where we hurt the most. From Adam onward, we're all sinners. We all die. Life's risky. And the reason for this is that we choose to run life ourselves. We're guilty. We know it. Approval by God speaks to this. We're no longer looking over our shoulder to see if trouble's coming. God tells us we're welcomed by him. When we trust him no longer, and we're no longer guilty, his approval enables us to trust him for all that happens. And that comes out very clearly when God says, well, now take Isaac, offer him up to me. Now, this is the son that's come that's through which all the nations are going to be blessed. And Hebrews rightly, I think, says, in a sense, Abram believed that God would raise his son from the dead. That's the extent to which he come. Abram was not worried about his, how it was all going to happen. He believed God. We've got to get to that point, don't we? Stop fretting about how it's going to happen and trust in God. And, um, and uh, then the lovely provision of a ram, because of course God doesn't want child sacrifice. And he provides a lamb and he calls the place the Lord will provide. Now there's a mature life. True? A person who has come to trust in God and Abram did and now we're being exhorted by God to actually trust him in the same way. The promise is not only to Abram but to us who believe that Jesus Christ was given and he died on a cross and he was raised from the dead where in the same family and the promise of eternal life and the kingdom and all good things along the way is made over to us as well. Oh, dear Father, how good you have been to us, how good you have been to the world. And we ask our Father that the enormity of your kindness and your affection and your purposive grace would touch the very core of our life and our conscience too so that we trust you for all that's around us and will be before us. And we look to you now that our lives may also then somehow or another be able to take this uh, great promise out to others as well. How badly we needed it, Father, across our communities and perhaps in our families as well. We ask for your blessing in these matters through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.